Hi everyone and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. More about them later. Okay, today's guest. Let's go through it. This one's, um, yeah, this one's a good one. So he's an ex-drug trafficker. He spent almost a decade in the most dangerous prisons in South America. He isn't what you'd imagine when you think of a typical drug dealer though. He grew up in a middle-class area of Gloucestershire in the UK, studied archaeology at Cardiff University. It was at university that his drug dealing started to take off, selling ecstasy to his fellow students to to subsidise his student loan. He soon became involved in international drug trafficking and was making hundreds of thousands of pounds in the business. He was selling high-quality cocaine in enormous amounts, working with multiple mules to keep the business running widely and smoothly. He was an unlikely and inconspicuous international drug kingpin until he was arrested in Ecuador in 2005. He said goodbye to his flashy lifestyle and entered the hardcore world of life in South American prisons. He saw people killed right in front of him as he found himself trying to survive amongst the violent prison gang warfare. He was released in 2015 and vowed never return to a life of crime. I've watched some of his content online and I... I was compelled to get this guy on the show so I could learn what it must be like to live that kind of life. Please welcome Peter Tritton. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for coming to join us on the show today. We've heard some incredible stories over the course of the last couple of years on the show and this one is an incredible one too. So ladies and gentlemen, listen up, pay attention and learn about the fantastic story that Peter's about to tell us about a journey that he went on. I think it will make us stop and think a little bit about the life that we live, okay, the choices that we make, the mistakes that we make and maybe maybe the things that we can do better. But first of all, Peter, thanks for coming on. Tell us for everyone's benefit, who are you? You're sitting there in your body warmer. So tell us a bit about yourself. My name is Peter Tritton. It's about what is it? Uh, double T. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we were just talking about the fact that my surname is uh, derived from the Roman god of the sea. And uh, yeah, I think my ancestry is maybe uh, Italian Roman. So tell us about your story. When you, when you were younger, you grew up, you know, you're a well-spoken man. You clearly come from middle-class uh, upbringing. Did you get a good education? Were you a good kid? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I um, yeah, grew up in uh, well on the edge of the Cotswolds in a small village called Aidney. Uh, went to school. In fact, Princess Anne lives on the edge of the village. Her Gatkin Park estate was literally in a, a field away. I used to walk my dogs across their land and often get chased off it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to school in Tetbury, which is not far from Prince Charles's Highgrove home. Okay, uh, his country home, surrounded by royalty. So, yeah, used to get the royal protection uh, Range Rover driving through the village every every day doing their circuit in fact i once got chased off the land with my dog we, we were up to no good in one of the barns i think as a kid and that very same range rover chased me and a friend down and nearly ran me over <laughs> gave, me a, gave me a scolding sent me on my way yeah so went to school in tetbury did quite well at gcse level did uh well i think i gained it was either 12 or 14 gcse's all a and b i then went to Sarancester college Gained four A levels in archaeology, geography, biology, and English. Again, reasonable grade. And then went to Cardiff University to read archaeology, but dropped out in my second year. Unfortunately, should have stuck at it. And so, when did when did when did the life of crime 
cross you? Do you know what? It, actually, at a very young age, uh, I mean, I have told this once or twice before, but God knows why, but at the age of about, I think it was around six or seven, I, I stole a friend of mine's mother's gold chains, took them home. I think because there was maybe not much money at home at that point, I wanted something for my mum, stashed it away, got found out, and the local police motorbike rider came out and gave me a telling off. I think his name was PC Flinders. Turned up at the house one night, big glasses, big moustache, you know, typical of the day. <laughs> Sat me down in the kitchen on my dad's knee and just said, look, Peter, if you carry on in this, in this way, you're going to end up in a lot of trouble. And obviously I was in tear, floods of tears. Say, so, hey, I'm never going to, you know, I won't, I promise. <laughs> I will never do anything like this again. And lo and behold... Years later, I did. <laughs> so at the age of 12, I started, yeah, I think, well, yeah, started smoking weed because I, I, yeah, it was kind of in the house a little bit. Just, I, I suppose as well, the, the free party scene had just kicked off then. And I had two older brothers, one of whom was a DJ in, local, in the local sort of free party scene. So I started tagging along probably from about the age of 13 or 14 to all these big warehouse parties that were going on. Going to raves? Raves, yeah. The first yeah. one was in my hometown that I ever went to in Stroud, which is now the uh, post office sorting office. And most people from my area will probably know it. Yeah, from then on, just started sort of offsetting the cost of partying by buying a few pills or some, some, some amphetamine or, or weed, selling it between my friends. And then started selling it at the parties as well because it was so easy to do and everyone was doing it. You know, the police wouldn't go into these parties. So it was a sort of lawless zone that you could deal with almost anything, really. This all stopped when I was at Siren College. I ended up getting arrested. The police turned up at my home in the evening one morning as I was on the way out the door to go to college. Caught me with two ounces of hashish, black uh, squidgy hash, chopped up into deals, basically. And... Uh, arrested me. My father was away in France at the time on holiday. So I was taken in, questioned. They obviously realised it was only a small affair. I ended up getting sentenced at the local magistrate's court to, what they call it? Community uh, service. Uh, not parole, probation. So at that point, you know, that shook me up quite a lot. And, you know, I, I saw the impact that it had on my father and my mother, you know, really upset my mum. So I stopped everything, realised that it could cause, you know, serious repercussions for me further on down the line with my studies and stuff. So knocked everything on the head completely. Did my A-levels at college, got my places at university, went to Cardiff. And then when I was at Cardiff, you know, student, typical student life, you don't have much money, living on baked beans, all the rest of it. So people started asking me if I could get hold of uh, pills and amphetamine and whatnot. And I... Well, basically, yeah, I, I mean, I could because I was still living quite close to my hometown. I started making trips back home, picking up parcels of, I, I don't know, 50 or 100 pills, some amphetamine, uh, taking them back down to Cardiff and selling it to student friends. That then escalated when one of the guys who was studying with me asked me to get some cocaine. And that was something that I hadn't ever dealt with before. I made a couple of phone calls back to my hometown to the dealers I was working with then. You know, they, they put me in contact with a guy who was solely dealing in cocaine. Bought half an ounce the first time, took it back down to this guy. Obviously, it wasn't very good. It was cut to bits. <laughs> but he was quite keen, so 
pressured me to well asked me to get some more it, it, it just exploded then went from being half an ounce a week I suppose to very rapidly three or four ounces a week and then I met some of the local dealers in Cardiff who then introduced me to some of their dealers who were supplying them and before I knew it I was supplying tens of thousands of pills hundreds of kilos of weed and hash between five and ten kilos of coke a week and obviously you know trying to study and the pressures of all that life you know the two separate lives going on just became too much. I was also recovering from quite a lot of trauma at that time. When I was studying at uh, Sixth Form College, a girl that I'd been very close to was killed in a car accident and another fellow student from the same social scene, both killed in the month of May. So that really, really traumatised me. And I don't think I'd really recovered from it fully. Also, as a sort of aside, by the age of 20, so this is all going on whilst these two parallel lives have been led, I'd actually witnessed eight people die by the age of 20. I think the first was when I was about 16. I saw a guy overdose on methadone. Didn't really know what was going on, but knew something was wrong, but there was nothing that could be done to save him because he'd taken too much of it. And then a few people from heart attacks. I used to do a lot of metal detecting. And I remember on a couple of the metal detecting rallies, a few of the old guys just dropped dead with heart attacks. And also from traveling around the country quite a lot, a few car accidents, a sort of cyclist get run over and his head got squished, tried to save him. He didn't survive. So there was a lot going on. <laughs> so so when you say you were traumatized, it, you you knew these people and so I suppose if anyone I mean I didn't know all of the people that had died like I say I mean quite a few of them were like I say the heart attack victims I didn't know but you were there you were there when it happened yeah you know tried to save them which didn't work that that messed with your head and did it make you feel uh, more reclusive more rebellious more uh, you know were you thinking consciously about what you were doing with the drugs or was it did it, were you swept up in a wave of it and you didn't know how to stop it it's a good question really I, I don't know I, I, I think yeah I, I mean I was just so involved with it all by then that it, yeah it just seemed like there wasn't to some extent that there was no way out really well I suppose there was I don't know it's, it's difficult to answer the trauma side of it I mean I was dealing with that okay the girl that got killed when I was at college that, that upset me the most. And I remember that was part of the reason that I left university, that and also the dealing being too much. The people dying in front of me, I, I actually dealt with it reasonably well. When I dropped out of university, I moved to Bristol because my, my girlfriend at the time was studying at university. So I rented a house there. And I actually applied to become a paramedic with the Avon and Somerset Ambulance Service because of all these people that I'd seen dying, because of the way I'd reacted quite calmly and, you know, coolly. Got all the paperwork, contacted them, and I said, look, you know, I've got one conviction for cannabis. Is this going to be a problem? They said, no, as long as you've got a clean driving licence. And the very day that the papers arrived in the post from them, a speeding ticket also came in the post from a camera in Manchester, you know, one of the fixed cameras, one of the first ever that they put up. Gatsos, yeah, from from Salford. I even remember where it was from. So this speeding ticket came in the post as well. And uh, that basically, I don't know whether it was my way of thinking at the time, but I just put it down to destiny that it wasn't it wasn't my destiny that, you know, I was going to be a paramedic. And so didn't send the forms back, basically. Really, I would have liked to have studied medicine and become a doctor, but didn't have the financial backing. And also, obviously... Oh, hold on a minute, you must have been making plenty of cash out of the drugs. Yeah, but I mean, like I say, by that point, I, I was already studying university, uh, already studying car, um, <laughs> archaeology, sorry. <laughs> so then what happened? So moved to Bristol, living in Bristol, dealing in Bristol as well. 
make even more contacts in Bristol. And it just starts, it's just mushroom from there. Just easy money? I wouldn't say it was particularly easy money because, I mean, you know, if you're driving up, well, I was driving up to London probably every other day, picking up uh, holdalls full of drugs, bringing them back down to the West Country. You know, I was constantly driving around from city to city, dropping things off. Car- with cars full of drugs? Yeah. <laughs> Did that bother you when you were doing it? Were you, as you were driving and that kind of stuff, did you always fear getting stopped uh, by the police and stuff? Yeah, I mean, it was hair raising. It was, yeah, you know, the paranoia levels were through the roof. Not something I'm proud of. You know, I don't, I'm not here condoning the sale of drugs no, or the I use understand. of drugs in any way. So made that no, clear. It's important the backstory is told, though. So, how old are you when you're driving up and down to London? About 20, 19, 20, 12. Yeah, 20 onwards, I suppose. And how long does that go on for? That lasted up until I was arrested in May of 2000. It was just after the, the millennium. So... How old were you then? Probably... Sorry? How old were you then? 21, 22? No, I, I was trying to remember. Uh, 24? So you were doing it for a few 24, years? 25. Yeah, yeah, it went on a few years. <clears throat> so but by the time I, got, I was arrested, I was actually living in the... Well, renting a wing of a manor house in a village called Slad, which is... Uh, have you, have you heard of a north called Laurie Lee? Yes. That, that's Slad. That, that's the village I was living in. The manor house that's mentioned in his book, Steambridge Court, is the manor house I was living in at the time that I was arrested. So, you know, you can see the, the amount of money that I was involved and that was being made. So give, me an, give me an idea of that then. So rough, roughly, what kind of money were you turning over every month, once every year? What, give me I an was, idea. I was probably making between twenty and £30,000 a month, up to 10 keys of coke a week. You put that at, say, 25,000 to 30,000, which it was at the time. And then there were the pills, the weed, the hash, amphetamine. You know, it was, I mean, it was a wholesale operation. And so when you when you were doing that, obviously there's the fear of the police, but was there the fear of other people with your, your yeah. cash and the drugs and stuff like that and the trouble you got with those? Because you're a nice guy. We look at it here. You're a lovely yeah. guy talking to me. You're, you don't look much like a gangster to me. No, I'm not. <laughs> I've never, never, never pretended to be. <laughs> I don't think you could pretend to be a gangster. You're too nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I've yeah, had a lot of trouble through, on, on and off throughout the whole, you know, the whole period. One of the first instances in Bristol ended up getting robbed for... It was two separate people, but at basically exactly the same time. So lost two kilos of cocaine, one, one to each of them, uh, within... A period of like two weeks or something which obviously ended up putting me in hot water with the people that it belonged to luckily i had money put aside that i was able to cover that with but i remember getting into a car chase around the saint george area of bristol me and a range rover and the guy I was chasing in an audi quattro of some sort can't remember exactly what now basically that pulled up in the garage opposite the big tesco's off the m32 he pulled into the garage at the same time <laughs> So we've done this sort of double take. I've jumped back in my Range Rover. He's sped off out of the garage and I've chased him, <laughs> rammed the, into the back of him at one point. He's managed to get away because obviously his car was fast and I was in the Range Rover. That ended up with us calling a meeting in a restaurant called Brown's at the top of, uh, let's, let's say at the bottom of White Ladies Road. I think it's at the top of Park. Uh, so the guy turns up that's taken this kilo of coke. We sat there having lunch, you know, trying to work out how to sort this problem out. And his Jamaican friend turns up, who was also involved with it, sits down at the table, uninvited, shows me a handgun that he's got tucked into his waistband. You know, as a threat, 
I'm looking around the restaurant and I mean, it's packed, it's lunchtime. So I stand up and I say, what are you going to do? You're going to shoot me in front of all of these witnesses? And I mean, the whole restaurant goes, <laughs> and you know, he stands up and starts going, I'm going to kill you, this, that, and the other. And I said, well, go ahead, do you know what I mean? You're in front of all these people, what's stopping you, do you know what I mean? I mean, I was worried. <laughs> He's left the restaurant with all the other guys. I paid the bill, said sorry to the manager, and obviously got out of there quite quickly. And so those types of experiences for you were, were, were regular? People I wouldn't say regular, behavior. no. I mean, I, that was probably about the worst or only occasion that I, that I had something like that happen in Bristol. Let's roll forward a little bit and go, go to when you were arrested then. So a few years later, you get arrested in the UK. Yeah. And they arrest you at, at the manor house that you, you're staying in. And what what do they arrest you for? Well, I actually, I got I didn't get arrested at the manor house. It was um, on the way back to to the manor house from seeing someone. They were still on the board, and they stopped me in a in a van, in a transit van, and found well, in total, they found five thousand ecstasy pills. I think about five or six kilos of amphetamine. Oh no, five or six kilos of weed, a couple of kilos of amphetamine, and a couple of ounces of cocaine, a sawn off shotgun, and some fake pound coins, and a load of rollerblades, <laughs> stolen rollerblades. <laughs> I ended so, up get, getting the nickname Rollerblade Boy in prison, which was... <laughs> <laughs> so you got you got caught with all that, like, and, and then what happened? You went to court and you were found guilty? Yeah, I get remanded into Gloucester, HMP Gloucester. I was put down as a potential Category A prisoner, which is maximum security, because of the people that I was dealing with up in London, who were, were very well known at the time. Well, that I was allegedly dealing with. I mean, that was never proven, but anyway... <laughs> Uh, I get sentenced to five years, which was fairly lenient because it was a first first offence. I end up getting sent from Gloucester to Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight, which is maximum security at the time. Then finish off at HMP Earlstoke, get released from there. How many years of the five years were you in prison? I, I did, t- I think it was two and a half, it might have been a little bit more, and then got parole. Okay, so you, you go, this is your first time of being in prison, yeah? Yeah. Tell me what that was like. Because of the way I was dealt with at Gloucester Prison, I mean, I was the only Category A or potential Category A prisoner that they had there. And the first one they'd had there in something like 15 years. So it was very intrusive the way they dealt with me. I was getting strip searched every day. Uh, they would come in and ransack myself pretty frequently. I wasn't allowed to talk to anyone. I was on the book, which is basically you have a notebook where they note any movements. So if you get taken from your cell to get your dinner, I would get escorted. They would close the whole wing down, put everyone in their cells just to get me out to take me to get my dinner. So they have two officers in front, two behind, take me down to the surgery. I wouldn't be allowed to talk to anyone. They would take me back to my cell, lock me in my cell. No one was allowed to talk to me through the door. All my phone calls were recorded, all my letters photocopied, visits behind glass, or if not behind glass, I would be sat at the table with a, a senior officer present, listening to everything and watching everything. I mean, they yeah, they made my life hell <laughs> for the first year, thereabouts. I didn't get sentenced. I think I did nearly, it was just sort of two years on remand, which was a very long time. You were on remand for two years, so then you've, you, served a further six, you served a further six months before you were out. Oh, it, was a, it was a little bit, bit more than six months. It was about, I think it was about eight or nine months. And all the way through that, that two and a half year period, you, you weren't talking to anyone? No, it was, like I say, it was, it was, that eased up after about probably eight or nine months. After you'd, you'd experienced some trauma issues with your 
girlfriend dying and other people dying along the way surely being in prison must have had some deep and painful impact on you as well i suppose i learned to deal with it reasonably quickly like i say the conditions that they held me in were pretty harsh to begin with and that was quite difficult to deal with you know the lack of contact with family and, and you know seeing the effect that it had on my family and on my friends my girlfriend at the time that was the worst part of it and also the fear that anyone might die from my family was i was in prison my mum became quite ill whilst i was in there you know the mental stress that i undoubtedly caused it didn't help obviously i, I mean overall i learned to deal with it i mean you have to in prison it's either you get on and deal with it and adapt or you become a victim basically to some extent did anything constructive come out of your time in prison your first, first yeah at Gloucester, like i say after about i would say eight or nine months it sort of started to ease up the security around me and did you did you share a cell with anyone i didn't at first because i was kind yeah of really... after after that period uh only when i got to parkhurst did someone get put in a cell with me and not for long so yeah there was only a couple of instances generally i was a uh, single cell which was better to be honest Sharing a cell with someone is a nightmare. So you come out, you come out of prison after two and a half years. You've had a, you've had a, a wake up call. You've had a good lesson. Uh, understood that what you've done is wrong. You've paid your 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 punishment and to society for the the wrongs that you did for breaking the law. And you become a new man, yes? Yeah. Actually, as an aside, during the sentence, the producers of the series banged up came in banged up abroad yeah well it was banged up because this it was originally called banged up because it was just oh, in really? england so the first pilot series was filmed in gloucester prison and they actually followed me they, they took me as one of the main characters in it so if you look on youtube you can find the very first series ever of banged up and that basically spawned the whole genre of banged up banged up abroad so they filmed me at gloucester they didn't film me at parkhurst they filmed me coming out well getting released from Earlstoke and they then filmed me on release in Bristol after I got out but um, yeah I tried to get a, a job doing some sales work that didn't really work out in fact the very first job that I applied for and got an interview for was in Bristol with a I think it was some sort of publishing company selling advertising space in magazines I got down there and very quickly realized that it was all a big fraud that they were actually ripping people off just a mad coincidence to turn up there and there's all these sort of semi-crooked guys and girls obviously defrauding people for their money. So I, I declined the offer of a job and said, I'm very sorry, I'm on parole for quite serious crimes and I'll have to uh, give this a pass. So I went away and I got offered a similar job through an old school friend, but that didn't work out. Just wasn't my thing. My dad at the time was a, a builder, so he offered to get me set up a doing painting and decorating so set up my own business as peter the painter who was actually a russian anarchist uh, involved in the siege of sydney street in 1916 i think something like that anyway so call myself peter the painter start doing painting jobs which i i quite enjoyed but quite quickly as well got sick of the daily grind and realizing that actually i wasn't really making anything that the money i was making was going on rent living cost food having a bit of fun at the weekend and then having to do it all again the next week. And, it, yeah. you know, I, I was just seeing a life in front of me of, of that. And even my dad was saying, this probably doesn't fit you, <laughs> you know, because I've, I've always had a lot of business ideas, legal and unfortunately illegal. During my time at Parkhurst, I read a, a newspaper article, I think in the Sunday Times, 
about these guys who had been caught bringing in cocaine in, in a container that was impregnated in plastic patio sets, garden furniture. Oh, wow. So the, the cocaine was actually mixed into the plastic and then cast as the furniture. So it was, it was you know, it wasn't visible at all. They would then reprocess it to get it out. And I just thought that was, a, you know, a really ingenious idea. And also at the time, you have to remember that 9-11 had just happened. Mm-hmm. So loads of drugs, mules and people trying to transport drugs have been caught up in all the heightened security. And I very quickly realised that anyone trying to transport blocks of cocaine was going to get caught because the security now was just too, too far, you know, too far gone and too sophisticated to beat. I saw that the future of cocaine trafficking was probably in doing it in this form or similar forms and spoke to a couple of my co-defendants at the time and said, look, if, if when I get released or if when we get released from this current sentence, if I do decide to do anything, I'm not going to deal anything, you know, drugs within Britain like I was before because we're too well known now. So I decided that, you know, if I was going to do anything, the only thing would be to import cocaine, you know, go and get a contact in Colombia or wherever and bring it direct from source into the country and then sell it wholesale. So I'm, you know, getting on with my legal business, painting, painting and decorating, start getting a bit sick of it, start getting the phone calls from people saying, oh, can you not help us out? Can you not get this? Can you not get that? And I start seeing easy money, the dollar signs or pound signs start flicking and start doing a couple of side deals just to generate some extra income, basically. Trying to not lead a flash lifestyle, you know just living in a small flat, driving my work van, try to keep it on the low, low down. So actually I'm buying a prequel to my first book, come to that later, but uh, I've just written a chapter about the sort of point at which I've reached when I decided, you know, that I'd had enough of painting and decorating and decided to pick up the phone and make the phone call, that fateful, fateful phone call to someone to uh, try and get contacted in London with a, a Colombian to source cocaine. I can't remember the exact day, obviously. <laughs> so then, so then, 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 then t- take me forward then. So you've got a situation, you, you're trying to cover a bit of expense because you're not earning enough money as a painter and decorator. You keep your head down. You do a bit of this, do a bit of that. You eventually get a contact in Colombia. Then what? Yeah. So, well, I, I get a contact in London with some Colombians. Go down to meet them, start buying some coke off them to supply to a couple of people uh, around uh, well, in Wales, actually, you know, just to get to know them a little bit, get to know them a bit better. And then I say, look, the, the real reason that I'm here is actually because I want to start importing cocaine. Would you be up for doing a sort of uh, a joint venture with me? You know, this is what I've got to offer. I've got a lot of uh, customers in Britain that we can sell to. I can also get the passengers that we need if we need passengers. You know, I've got, I've got a lot of logistical things that I could bring to the table. The Colombian that was involved turned to me and he said, well, actually, we're bringing it in at the moment. And it's in, he showed me the method, it was in rubber. They were impregnating it in rubber and putting it into the ground sheets of tents. And I said, well, that is exactly the way that I wanted to bring it in, in, you know, impregnated into something. And it was just, you know, the eureka moment, shall we say. It just felt like it was destined to happen, which I suppose it wasn't. It did. (laughs) Yeah, I I said to them, look, well... I, I can I can get some pretty good financial backing from some people that I was working with at the time who were interested in investing. Let's put this together. So that's basically what we did. I got the financial backing, put up a couple of, well, 
I got the Columbia to put a car up a Mercedes as uh, surety for a loan of about 25 or 30,000 pounds uh-huh. to finance the first run. And the first one that we did, I decided to go and collect it from Ecuador because I felt that if we were going to start sending other people to do these runs, I wanted to know what it felt like to do it. And I also wanted to be able to talk the people through it and uh, give them any sort of uh, tips or hints as to how to behave or, you know. Why Ecuador and why not Colombia? We decided to do it from Ecuador because Ecuador wasn't at that time. Well, I mean, it isn't really still known as a cocaine producing nation. It's more of a transit point. Same as Venezuela as well as a transit point and Brazil to some extent. So a lot of uh, these cartels use these countries as a stepping stone. So, yeah, decided to do the first one from Ecuador, get a flight with KLM, something like 14 hour flight, which was horrendous. <laughs> I did that flight two years ago. OK, so you, you get on a plane, you got your KLM flight to Quito. I know the exact flight you got on. So you land in yeah. Quito. Then what happens? Land in Quito, book a hotel, just went to the Hilton because it was easiest. Uh, initially stay there at night and then find a different hotel to check into that was more you know laid back and not as expensive as well and wait well contact my Colombian guide back in London say look I'm in I'm in Quito they give me a phone number for the people that are bringing the tent down from Cali in Colombia I end up waiting I think it's probably about the best part of a week in in Quito for them to arrive get called one night to get in a taxi, get in a taxi, drives around the city for a bit. The Colombian contact gets in the in the taxi, gives me the tent, jumps back out. And I go back to the hotel. I wait around a couple of days. Then I decide to book another flight back. I oh no, I went back on the same flight, actually, that I booked the, orig- the original flight. So go to the airport and I, I forget there's a luggage allowance. <laughs> so I bought my family loads of gifts, including really heavy uh, ceramic plates and pots and all sorts of stuff. Get to the airport and I'm, I don't know, I've probably had about 120 kilos of luggage, including this great big 10-man tent. And of course they say, look, so you're, you know, you're way over your luggage allowance. If you want to take all this back, there's got to be an excess charge of about four, four or $500. I think it might have even been more. And I said, oh, well, you know, I can't pay that. So I'll have to get rid of some of the stuff. And they said, well, why don't you get rid of that tent? You don't need that. And I was like, well, actually, I do need that. I'll have to get rid of, get rid of all these gifts, which just look crazy, obviously. So I'm there give, handing out all these gifts to the, the people that are working in the cafes and restaurants near the check-in desk. Yeah, which is making their day, obviously. So get rid of all these gifts, get the weight down, check back in, get on the flight. And obviously I I've, I've must have flagged up with my previous record and also, you know, what's just happened with the luggage allowance. So I, I arrive at Schiphol Airport in, in Amsterdam and there's a row of drug enforcement agents, uh, like Dutch agents and all the passengers are you know filing through i'm at the back of one of the columns and one of these officers just looks down the row and sees me looks at his friends and obviously has some sort of note or picture of me and they pull me aside along with a couple of other people and luckily they didn't bring the tent up because it was in, you know you're in transit there i get questioned stay calm say, yeah, you know, I've, I've been on holiday in Ecuador. I've been to Cotopaxi, which I have been, had all the tour guides and all that sort of stuff. And they say, okay, you can carry on and go on your way. And I was like, really? Get on the plane back to, I think it was, I think it was Stansted at that time. Uh, Maybe in Heathrow, but I can't remember. And I was thinking, you know, God, that was lucky, but I'm sure when I arrive in England, I'm going to get ripped to pieces. 
get get to England, there was and there was no check whatsoever. Got through, absolutely ecstatic. I take I take the the tent to my partners, the Colombian and the Chilean guy. They've got a place ready to extract the cocaine from the from the rubber. How'd they do it? I can't say exactly because I'm not allowed to. But it's uh, involves a few chemicals. It's it's a process of about two or three days. You have to ex yeah just extract it from the rubber, basically using a few chemicals, which I won't mention. How many kilos of cocaine are in a ten man tent? We we um, I think it was either three or four we brought back on that first one. Three or four kilos in the tent. Yeah, we then uh, we then cut that. We put some uh, cutting agent into it, so it was about 60% pure. What do they cut cocaine with? There were f a few chemicals, but at that time, there was one which uh, people will probably know if they're watching this. It's called Magic. That's not the actual name. The chemical name is Finesetine, which is a chemical that is used, say, analgesic, which uh, a lot of people use to cut cocaine. If you're testing cocaine, it doesn't show up in the test, so it, it will still show as being like 96 or 95% pure. And in reality, it's only 60 or 70% pure. So this was quite new on the scene at the time. So we were using that. And then, you know, so we made the, the three or four keys into about six, sold them all for about, uh, I think it was about 25 to 28,000 a kilo. So you do the math. Yeah. <laughs> you're over 150,000 and you've spent 30, yeah? yeah? Yeah. And you're sitting there going, easy peasy lemon squeezy. Is that what you're thinking? I mean... Yeah, I mean, apart from getting, I mean, the fact I got stopped actually was my ultimate test, the ultimate proof that the the way that we were doing it, the method that we were using was was un, pretty much undetectable because it couldn't be detected by dog, couldn't be detected by x-ray or scanner. We could counteract the reactive test by putting another chemical in it to beat that. It was pretty much undetectable. And the fact that I'd been stopped in Holland and then released and let go through with it, that was it. I was like, well, this is great. This is... <laughs> green light let's get on with it so pretty much immediately started planning the next escapade and then we started doing probably one tent every month 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 and a half so different like people bringing a tent back yeah we would then try and try and recruit people which we were very careful about because i didn't want to see anyone going to prison or ended up in trouble or dead or whatever so we would try and find people that a didn't have a criminal record particularly not for drugs, people that were working preferably, that looked fairly respectable, people that were, you know, calm in a, in a, in a situation, pressured situation, and also people that we could hopefully trust if something went wrong. And I mean, it was it was difficult to find people, to be honest. You know, if, if, if you think about the people that you would usually send, generally they're going to have criminal records. So finding someone to do something criminal that hasn't got a criminal record is quite difficult. How much would you have to pay them to do that? Yeah, so we would cover all the costs, obviously, and then pay between ten and twelve thousand pounds per tent. And that was enough. Yeah, generally. Yeah. Okay. So you're doing this for a period of time. How long are you running this battles and force for in the tents? We started having problems when a lab got taken out in Crystal Palace in London. And that was fairly near the beginning. I think we'd only done a couple of runs and the police took out a lab. I wasn't there at the time. I was actually in Cully in Colombia when it happened. They arrested the Colombian and the Chilean. So I ended up stuck in Cali. Wasn't sure that I could come back to Britain, wait around for about a month. And then, you know, my door hasn't been taken taken off or come through by the police. So I decided to come back, arrive back quite nervously, obviously. Nothing happens. So decided to carry on. 
Colombian gets released after about six months. In that six months, I've sort of carried on doing things. He's had a mobile in the prison, so we've maintained contact and he's been able to organise things from within the prison with my help. So yeah, he gets out and then just carry on. Things really came to a head when a lab got taken out in Edinburgh in Scotland. And I was quite close to that lab because I'd been I'd been renting the apartment that the lab was in, had been present the night before the lab got smashed. It was, you know, it was a close call for me. I think the police actually thought I was in, in there when they raided it. They arrested a, Columbia, a couple of Colombians, brother and sister, found some precursor chemicals, a 15 tonne floor standing press to repress the cocaine, you know, just chemicals and bits and pieces that we were using they got remanded again they missed me i managed to get away ended up getting smuggled out of britain by the turkish mafia in the boot of a mercedes car through dover into calais which are quite funny because obviously at that time most people are trying to get smuggled into britain by the turkish yeah. mafia i go the other <laughs> go on the run in france drop all my electronic communications shut my banks you know drop everything that's electronic disappear as best I could, decided to do the last fateful run, you know, one final job to Ecuador to collect a tent. Unfortunately, the Colombian had been turned by the police and he was an informant, not the only informant, but he was the key informant. So he instigated my arrest in Quito in Ecuador, along with the British police and Interpol. So I land in Quito. Well, say goodbye, goodbye to my father in France. He took me to the train station and that morning when he saw me off at the, uh, the train station, we just had a, I remember he and I had a feeling that I wouldn't be coming back. It was just, you know, when you get that sort of premonition, I'd even had a dream prior to leaving. I told my girlfriend about where I described the prison in Ecuador in detail, the color of the walls, the layout of the, of the wing, the layout of the prison, everything. And she said, oh, don't be so stupid. You you know, you're going to come back. Don't be silly. You'll be fine. She didn't really know what was going on. Thought I was going out there for some sort of semi-legal business, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, land in Ecuador, in Quito, go to the hotel. And I immediately realised that I'm under surveillance. Should have disappeared. But me being arrogant and thinking I can get away with it. And also, at this point, I realised that I've been under surveillance for a long time by not only the foreign police, but the British police as well. You know, I realised I'm either going to get arrested in Ecuador or in Britain. And I kind of think, well, if it's going to happen, it would probably be better if it's in Ecuador, because I, at least I stand a chance of being able to bribe the police here or, or escape or get out of the prison. You know, I stand more chance of getting out early rather than going back to England or getting caught in England where I'm going to face minimum of 20 and spend it in could probably category a prisons which are not much fun so i collect the the tent take it back to the hotel my girlfriend has arrived from england because i hadn't at that point seen her. she yeah i hadn't seen her for a while i say that she said goodbye to me she didn't because she wasn't in france with me i'm <laughs> getting confused she comes from England for a holiday, basically, so I can show her around Ecuador. And the very first day she arrives, which is on the third day of my being there, the police arrest us just after dinner at about 10 o'clock at night. We go back to the hotel room. As I, as I put the key in, the, the electronic key in the door, there's suddenly a whole bunch of police come rushing down the corridor, armed police, guns drawn, Ecuadorian police, you know, screaming at us, don't move, otherwise we'll shoot you, blah, blah, blah. Take us into the room. They've been, you know, I can tell that they've been in the room pre previous uh, to coming into, into the room on that occasion because they immediately go to the tent, the wardrobe where the tent was, take it out and go, oh, look what we found. So I get arrested, she gets arrested, we get taken to the Interpol holding 
station, uh, which is just by the, just opposite the airport, actually, that you probably flew from. Get held there for going on five or six weeks. Don't get to see daylight apart from, from one hour. I think we got taken out. Were you in the cells together or, or separate? We were in the same holding area, but across a courtyard from each other. So we could see each other through gated, barred gate. Yeah. So we could talk to each other. She was absolutely devastated, as you can imagine, uh, in shock. And also got ill from the water, I think, all the food while she was there. The conditions were an absolute nightmare. You know, loads of people crammed into two small holding cells. We're there five or six weeks, and then I get taken transported up to the the uh like the remand center by this point i've made friends with uh, some i think they were lebanese and syrian terrorists <laughs> who, who who were being held at the same time as me in interpol they were being held on drug trafficking charges they've been sending cocaine back to i think israel selling the drugs there and then using the money to fund hamas or Hezbollah so they'd all been arrested and they spoke English so helped me out quite a lot got me a lawyer I, I actually ended up being represented by their lawyer the same lawyer we all got transferred at the same time which I'm I was glad of because obviously that they, they they had quite a lot of full in power there they quite you know had quite a big presence so when we arrived in the prison they were already expected they had a lot of friends in there we spent a couple of weeks in the Rivan center and then got transferred into the main prison where our our lawyer had arranged cells a cell for them um, I went into a cell with a French and German guy on the wing that was mainly for foreigners there were some Ecuadorians and some other South Americans there but it was mainly for foreigners and so what happened to your girlfriend so yeah she gets sent to the women's prison on the other side of Quito I managed to get her out of prison after three months three or four months something like that okay so how did you get her out? What did you do? Did you bribe somebody or did you just say it was nothing to do with her? Yeah, I, I started trying to bribe the judge, police, everyone I could. I ended up having to take the rap and say, look, yeah, you know, hands up. It was me. I was trying to transport this this cocaine out of Ecuador. You know, she's nothing to do with it. They accepted that, which she wasn't. The British police took a different view. I warned her. I said, don't go back to Britain because if you do, the British police are going to arrest you undoubtedly and try and put you on trial, particularly because I'm not there. They're going to target you. She didn't listen to me, didn't want to accept the fact that they would do that. You know, she said, well, look, in her mind, she was innocent. And she was because, you know, she kept saying to me, look, I haven't done anything. I'm innocent. I'm not involved. I've got a young daughter. You know, don't be stupid. Of course, they're not going to arrest me. And I said, well, yeah, they will. So through a friend in Spain, I arranged an apartment for her in Barcelona that she could have stayed at. We were going to get her daughter brought over from England to stay with her and just wait at distance and see what happened with the case in England rather than doing it from within a prison cell. Instead, she decides to go back to England. Uh, she arrives in England and pretty soon after her arrival, she was arrested and put on remand in England. And at that point, we lost contact. She was later sentenced. Well, I was sentenced first to 12 years in Ecuador and she was later sentenced to 13 years in England, which in my opinion was a, was a travesty of English justice, really because the British police fabricated evidence against her. Said that every time she'd been on holiday with me or when I'd sent her on a holiday, she'd been transporting drugs for me, which she never, ever did. She did 13 years sentence? She got sentenced to 13 years. And the, 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 the sole evidence, as far as I'm aware, I never actually got to see all the evidence in the British case. But from what I was told, the evidence that convicted her were trace elements of cocaine on some bags that were found at her house which were mine anyway, 
that I that just rucksack that I'd left there. And the second piece of evidence was a receipt from a chemical com, uh, chemical company that I'd asked her to buy some chemicals from legally legal chemicals that she was allowed to buy legally that had her name on you say you lost touch you lost touch with her is she she's got a lot of reasons to not like you right now i guess yeah yeah obviously and i you know i apologize for that happening to her it shouldn't have happened you know her legal team obviously did not do a very good job i offered to write statements for her saying that she was nothing to do with it and you know help out in any way that i could but they never contacted me so that was the end result and she spent yeah, I know. It's terrible. She ended up spending six, I think, either six and a half or seven years in prison because of that, which she should never have done. Wow. Okay, then then you you get you get sent down for twelve years in Ecuador. Yeah, the British police actually asked for me to be sentenced to the maximum of twenty five years, and at that time, twenty five years in Ecuador meant doing twenty four because all of the. Uh, remission such as parole or early release had been repealed so they weren't functioning at that time so it would have meant actually doing 24 years in prison and i remember the day that I, I got presented the document by my lawyer from the british police requesting this i remember the blood drained from me and i went pale and nearly passed out as you can imagine <laughs> so obviously I, I you know i started throwing money around left right and center trying trying to uh, get the the sentence uh, lessened and i managed to get the judge to agree to 12 years and i actually had to say to the judge please don't sentence me to less than 10 years <laughs> because if you do the british police will let either extradite me or when i complete my sentence here they will then re-sentence me on my return to britain because they had said that if i do less than six years in prison or get sentenced to less than 10 years that is what they were going to do. So I actually had to say this to the judge and say, please don't sentence me to less than 10 years. I mean, can you believe it? <laughs> wow. Whoever has to ask a judge not to sentence to less than And how many years did you serve in Ecuador? No, I actually ended up spending nine years and three months in Ecuador out of a 12-year sentence. I would have spent 11 years and one month had I not been repatriated at the end of the sentence when i got sentenced to 12 years they also put a fine with the sentence of eight thousand dollars which had to be paid if i wanted to be repatriated back to britain so obviously in my mind i was very against getting repatriated back to britain where a i thought i was going to get re-sentenced to 20 or 25 years in prison and spend it in maximum security prisons and b i didn't want to spend eight thousand dollars for the pleasure of it so tell me what it was like in a prison in ecuador when I arrived at the prison in Quito, uh, like I said, I, I had these Lebanese and Syrian terrorists with me, which helped. <laughs> so I didn't get too, well, I didn't get any trouble really coming in the, into there. But the prison in Quito wasn't too gang orientated. The gangs in there tended to be, the Colombians would have their own wing, which was D-wing. The Ecuadorians would stick to B-wing and us foreigners would stick to C-wing. So it was, it was kind of reasonably split up and not too bad in that sense. The prison itself was very much like a Victorian prison in England where you have a centre and the wings then wrote, uh, come off it like the spokes of a wheel. In fact, I mean, if you look online, you can see pictures of the of the prison in Quito, which is called Garcia Moreno. And the episode that I did of Banged Up Abroad was actually filmed in that same prison, which is now closed. Wow. So if you want an idea, you can you can look that up. Very sort of Victorian looking prison, built in, I think, 1850, 1860. How long before you learned Spanish? Um, it took me a little while, actually. I mean, I knew a little bit. And from school, I, I spoke fairly good French. It took, I, I picked it up reasonably quickly, but before I was fluent, it was probably two or three years. So yeah, keto wasn't too bad. 
I mean, I did see some, I mean, there were a few gunfights in there. The prisoners had guns in the prison, machetes, knives, hand grenades. So you had to be pretty careful. There was no running to the guards if you got into trouble. You know, there was, there was, yeah, no one to go to really. So you had to watch what you were doing in there and not get into trouble and try and stay healthy as well. And um, I don't want to skip through this too quickly, but you tried to escape. Yeah. So I did two years in keto after the first, probably pretty much from the beginning, I was thinking about escape because I didn't want to hang around in keto way in prison in Ecuador. So I started trying to formulate ideas to escape from there. I found out that quite a few people had managed to escape from, from the prison in Quito by digging tunnels out there because it was on the side of Pintinja Volcano. The soil underneath the prison was pretty good for digging, should we say. <laughs> So that was one option. I became friends with some ex-FARC guerrillas, Colombian guys who had been involved with FARC, who suggested blowing the wall of the prison with an RPG, you know, get some of their friends down from Colombia with, with machine guns, blow the prison wall, exercise yard wall with an RPG, lay down covering fire and escape, you know, mass escape that way. I mean, there were various plots. We, we talked about a helicopter job off the roof of the prison but that was going to be too expensive and pretty dangerous all sorts of ways of getting out of there trying to escape on a visit because the visits there came in your your visit would come into the wing of the prison and actually into your cell and every two weeks they would be allowed to well a female would be allowed to stay overnight with you so they would come in saturday morning stay all day saturday stay overnight saturday and then leave sunday evening so every other week there would be a quite a large party on the wing loads of women in there you would get locked in your cell by nine o'clock at night and they would get reopened at eight o'clock in the morning so if you had your girlfriend in you would kick out everybody else that was in the cell oh which you would probably buy if you wanted your own cell that you would buy it which would probably cost around two thousand dollars and that would come equipped with a tv a fridge dvd Oh, satellite TV, sometimes you could have a computer in there, a telephone, but you would have to bribe the guards so that they would turn a blind eye to a lot of this stuff. You could get shopping brought in with a visit. So anything you wanted from the supermarket, apart from alcohol, obviously, which we could get smuggled in. There was loads of cocaine in the prison, weed, what else? Oh yeah, visits would be all day Wednesday, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. So you imagine that's half of your time in prison almost is spent either with a visitor or to offset the fact that a lot of foreigners didn't have visits, we decided to do a tour of the prison for backpackers and any tourists in, in Quito. We got this idea from the book Marching Powder, written by Rusty oh, Yan. Yeah. So at that time, the, the tour guides in Bolivia had, had ceased because the, I think that prison had either closed or that, that guy had been released. So the Scottish girl that had been visiting us suggested that we, we do the same thing. So we set up a really, well, what became a really popular tourist uh, guide. We, we would get people coming from all around the world, from Ireland, Britain, France, Spain, Germany, Holland, Australia, everywhere, Canada, America. So on a, on a, on a normal visit day, we'd on average get between 10 and 15 people coming in. I would make sure got, you know, looked after and guided around the prison safely, you know, told a few stories. As you can imagine, it became really popular. They would bring in a few gifts. I didn't smoke cigarettes, but they were allowed to bring in two packs of cigarettes each. So they would quite often come in and just you know, pockets full of cigarettes, packets of cigarettes that I would then disperse through all the prisoners, uh, foreign prisoners equally. Bags of food, which was really great. Toiletries, which we would split up equally or money even. They could bring in money. 
which we would just make sure that was equally dispersed throughout all the foreign prisoners. So that helped a lot of people that didn't have visits and also broke the time up as well. A lot. It's a long time to cope with a completely different way of life. What, what are your worst memories? One of the worst things that happened in Quito was actually on a visit day. I remember on a couple of occasions there were gunfights broke out in the prison, one of which was in the excise yard behind my cell. I had some visits, some foreigners in the cell with me at the time. We, we heard gun, gunfire. A prisoner had thrown a, a couple of handguns over the wall into the maximum security to a guy that had been waiting. He picked up the two guns and shot three people dead in front of their visits then and there. So that was one. I mean, we didn't see that, but the whole prison had to be evacuated. And then on another occasion, a an informant had been killed on on a visit day in front of visits. I mean, there were women in there, children, and a Russian friend of mine had come and got me and said, look, come and see what's happening on, on D-Wing. So I went over there and this guy was just being, he'd already been stabbed a few times, so he was on the floor. Guards just stood there, stood back, watching it happen. They'd obviously been paid off. And this other guy who'd been brought in, especially to kill him, a life sentence prisoner, was just stabbing this guy repeatedly. The guy was on the floor, you know, half dead the guy that was doing it stopped halfway through went back to the to a cell sat there smoked some crack cocaine came back out carried on stabbing this guy for about another 15 or 20 minutes until he eventually ended up dead there were women and men stood around watching great pool, big pool of blood which i've never gotten the smell of was the worst thing the smell and the noise of it and the taste as well almost in your mouth and kids literally just running through the blood i mean it was the most disturbing thing and no one stopping what was happening not even the guards. I mean, it was horrific. Makes me, you know, you can see the reaction I'm having telling the story. So that was that was uh, very disturbing. Two years goes by. Uh, I've tried to escape. The guards find out about a tunnel that we're digging on B wing. We buy a cell, especially for the for the project, obviously on the ground floor. <laughs> uh, start digging this tunnel out of there in conjunction with these Colombian guys from FARC. It gets discovered. Well, it doesn't get discovered. It gets found out about. The guards find out what we're doing they don't find the tunnel so we all get transferred to different prisons i get transferred to the prison in guayaquil which at the time was either the third or fourth most dangerous prison in the whole of south america there were eight thousand prisoners in the prison equally split between two gangs who were at war with each other and i mean i i'd heard about this prison through the news and through friends in the prison in Quito saying, you know, you really don't want to end up in this prison because it is an absolute nightmare. They extort all foreign prisoners. You know, there's no wing for foreigners like there is in Quito. You get split up between between the wings so that the gang can then extort you so you can't form any sort of group to protect yourselves. Yeah, it's just an absolute nightmare from what I was hearing. And just prior to me moving, getting moved there, there's been a massive gunfight between the inmates and the police after an inmate was shot dead by the police on the roof of the prison. It was a gang member. So all the prison, well, all the prisoners with handguns had got, you know, taken a dislike to this, barricaded all the, the entrances to the wings and just opened fire at the police. And it had taken them like a day or two to get the prison under control. And this had been on the news not long before I got moved there. So you turn up there in quiet kill. What's it like when you get there? Is it is it as bad as you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, luckily for me, because I've already been in Quito for two years, I've made friends with one of the gang leaders from Guayaquil who'd been uh, sent to Quito for punishment. So in his time there, I've got to know him a little bit. A guy called Coyote, or that was his nickname. He was also a drug trafficker, so we got on quite well. Prior to me getting sent to Guayaquil, he'd already been moved back down there. 
So I got my friends to phone ahead and say, look, I'm on the way. Can you make sure that I'm received well by his his group who were called the Cubanos? So that was the name of their gang. So when I arrived there, well, the day after I arrived, this group of about 50 strong gang members, including uh, Cubano, who was the gang leader, come out of the prison to greet me, <laughs> all wearing the newest sort of sports gear, carrying telephones, the guards just open the gates for them, they come out all, all carrying handguns, you know, in, in their belts, just come over to me and say, hi, we're coming, we've come to get you. Here's a telephone, talk to your friends in Quito, just tell them you're okay, we're going to look after you. And I, you know, in the back of my, my mind, I was thinking, well, either they're here to greet me or they're here to extort the hell out of me. So it's either going to go very well or very bad. And I wasn't quite sure which you know, because I hadn't really worked out why I'd been transferred because some people have been saying, oh, you've, you've annoyed the, the, the boss of the wing in Quito. who was one of the, it was actually one of the, the Arab guys there, but he was heavily involved with the gang in Guayaquil as well. So I didn't know whether he'd set up my being transferred to then extort me. I'd basically bought three cells in Quito by this point. So I had uh, cells worth like three... No, six thousand about six six thousand dollars. Um, I'd left money behind there and possessions, which I I I thought was what the what the plan was, you know, to then try and take all that off me and extort me in Guayaquil. It was only later on that I worked out that I, it was also the reason that I've been transferred because I've been trying to escape. So anyway, they they take me into the prison take me into one of the main wings, drop me off there with another gang member who was the boss of that wing. So they had a boss for each wing who controlled everything that happened on that wing. They would have a boss of the drugs on each wing working for them, a boss of the alcohol, a boss. It was, there was some, it was a gang member for every, every element of what happened in there. So I get taken into this wing. I end up getting put in the, in the cell with the boss of the drugs for the whole prison. So on the first night, he pulls out a rucksack full of crack cocaine, like the entire rucksack, bags of weed. He's got a handgun in the cell. <laughs> so it was it was a rude awakening for me. Um, they very quickly tell me that no foreigners generally get involved with the gang. They're, they're not really allowed to have any businesses. They're not allowed to do anything, really, because... The way that they they were viewed was as a cash cow and someone to be extorted, you know, a source of funds for the gang. Because of who I knew there, this guy, Coyote, they said, look, we, we, we will accept a small sort of donation from you of $300 rather than the usual process of extorting the hell out of you for 10 grand or whatever the, the normal fee was. So I paid $300 to come onto the wing and then decide to do a deal with them to buy a cell there just to sort of grease the wheels and smooth things over a bit but also so I can have a cell of my own which is which gives you a lot more privacy and a lot more space after a couple of months agree to buy a cell pay them about a grand get a cell which is pretty much stripped bare and start equipping it with a tv buy a tv fridge you know just the basic stuff I need cooker and realize that in this prison I'm gonna have to very much have to keep my head down and not try to be clever not try and get involved in stuff not get into trouble you know just really stay out of trouble because a couple of the foreigners on the wing come and see me after a while and say look you know they tell me how it is there and say that you've got to be very careful here because the gang really run this prison they pay off the guards they pay off the director of the prison 
it's very much they run the inside of this prison. Also, they're at war with the other gang at the other end of the prison, so don't go to the other end of the prison because there's a they've got like a, a border which if you cross you can't come back, or if you do come back they'll grab you and and you know uh, want to know why you've left this half the prison yeah. and think that you're an enemy spy. And I mean, it was just all sorts of madness going on there. The murder rate was between five and six people a week in that prison. How how, how many people are in the prison in total? Eight thousand. Eight thousand people in the prison and five or six people a week are murdered yeah so the visits there i think the visits there were wednesday and then saturday and sunday as well but you couldn't have your girlfriend over to stay like you could in keto because it was just too dangerous some people did have their families living in there when i when i first arrived there their kids would leave in the morning and go to school come back in the afternoon but they they weren't supposed to be in there and after i think about six months to a year they, they did come in, and, uh, come in and clear out the prison of all the women, the kids uh, and pets as well. A lot, of, a lot of the gang members had dogs in there. You hear a lot of stories that you hear a lot of stories about men getting raped in prison. That's kind of like a theme that you hear quite a lot of. Is that as commonplace as it is, you know, in people's minds? Not in South America, it isn't because obviously you had women coming into the prison there. So there was no real need. There wasn't any you know it just it didn't take place i mean i think that's very much a, a, a north american scenario i mean even in the prison in england i never saw anything like that happen it was very much frowned upon there were <laughs> there were quite a few gay relationships in the prison in 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 ecuador in particularly in Guayaquil. i remember seeing a couple of guys getting married but this was between the ecuadorians not not the foreigners it was it was quite weird because you know, they had their visit, their wives coming in as well, you know, and then they would end up hooking up with a guy. It was, it was very bizarre. <laughs> There's the, your, your time must have been difficult, challenging. And when, when you eventually got to that point where you knew you were going to be coming home? I mean, that, that didn't happen for a long time. That, it, that happened in, like I said earlier, at the very end of the, the sentence or towards the end of the sentence. And it only happened after things got so bad in the prisons in Ecuador that the, the, the embassy there wanted to get us out because, I mean, there were gunfights happening all the time in there. Uh, I was involved in one of the gunfights, not with a gun. I mean, I, I was caught up in the middle of one that happened, I think it was around 2008, 2009. So I'd been in Guayaquil two two or three years by that point. 9.30 at night, uh, one of the nights in October, uh, another gang had come into the prison called the Choneros, who were uh, starting to come to power in the country, starting to make waves and taking over a lot of the drug trade and stuff. And obviously the gang who was controlling the prison at the time, the Cubanos didn't like this, didn't like the fact that these new guys had come into the prison and felt very threatened by it, plotted to take out their boss, who is a guy called JL or Hot Ellie in Spanish, who was on my, they were all on my wing. And I'd actually become very close to these guys. His brother was living directly in front of my cell, a guy called Carlos, who, who I'm still friends with to this day, become very friendly with him. And that was starting to get frowned upon by this other gang because they had also put me in charge of selling the cocaine on the wing for them. So I've made the error of getting involved with the gangs now. So on the night of this shootout, me and a German guy, also called Peter, are cooking in my cell. And the cell doors on, on in this prison are, are left open 24 hours a day. So we, you know, we only close them when we decide to close them. 
we get locked onto the wings at about 5 5 p.m so but then after that we're open 24 7 on the wing do what you want so we're cooking food and one of the choneros has come to me and said oh could you give me a plate of food this is one of the guys i've gone with and i said yeah no problem so around 9 30 i go to collect this plate uh, to give them the food and I noticed there's a there's not many people around on the wing most of the doors are shut there's like tension you know hushed groups of two or three people talking to each other there's something wrong anyway but I don't know what take the plate of food back to this guy and as I'm giving him the plate of food one of the other gang members from the Cubanos comes up behind me over my right shoulder uses me as, as cover pops up behind my shoulder and shoots the guy dead as I'm giving him the plate of food, shoots past me from behind me, shoots the guy in the head, blows the back of his head out. Obviously the food goes everywhere. Spaghetti bolognese, bolognese that I was cooking. Obviously he drops dead. I'm, I, I just instantly run towards my cell, dive in my cell, try and shut the door. The German guy wants to open the door to see what's happening, drag him out of the way, shut the door. <laughs> and then this two hour gunfight ensues where they're trying to kill this guy, Hotelli, JL, Jose Luis. He comes out of his cell with another guy called Manuko. Uh, so there, there's yeah, a basic gun battle between the two of them and about 12 of the, the Cubanos. Goes on for two hours, up until the point, basically two of them get shot dead. Obviously the guy in front of me who got shot dead and then the wing boss for the Cubanos also gets shot dead. They torture him, shoot him twice in the stomach. He's crying out for about half an hour saying, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. I don't know. And then they just shoot him in the head. We hear, him, we hear the shots say, look, you know, the other guy says, look, we've just killed your, your, your mate, shot him dead, blah, blah, blah. It calms down a bit. They all go back in their cells. The police then come in, get us all out of our cells, beat the hell out of us for another two hours until they find out who's done what, torture people, waterboard them. They're discharging M16s up against the side of people's heads to get them to talk and you know, you know, say what's happened. Oh, it's just a nightmare. They they heard the 130 of us that are on the wing. They heard us into the space where this guy is being executed which was the width of a prison cell, uh, half of which now is saturated in his blood, about an inch deep. They make 130 of us stand in his blood and then whip us with a, like a cat and nine tails as we come out of there. This is the police. And then they leave. It's just a nightmare, basically, after that. I was lucky that I didn't actually end up getting more trouble than I did from the gang that were left behind. They basically take all the Choneros off the wing, leaving the Cubanos in charge of the wing again. The day after, they take them all out. I, we're, we're told to all stay in ourselves and no one can come out of their cells. So the existing gang members that are left behind then go cell to cell, getting anyone that they don't like or that they think is involved with the other gang out of their cells, beating them, taking them off the wing and stripping their cells, robbing them of everything that they've got you know, and then just getting them, getting rid of them off the wing. I hear them going cell to cell around the wing, getting closer and closer to my cell. And I know that they're going to be coming to cause me trouble, basically, because, you know, I've been selling the cocaine for these other guys. 
and I knew that they were pissed off with me. So they're getting closer and closer, and there's a faint knock at the door, and I think, that's not them. I open the door, and my visitor's there, this woman called Mercedes, who works for the church, and she somehow has managed to get permission to come in and see me because she knows, you know, that I'm going to be having trouble. And just out of, well, she's obviously worried about me after hearing what had happened the night before, manages to get permission to come in because she had special permission. Manages to get into my cell before they reach me. So, you know, we're talking, me and her. There's a bang, bang, bang at the door and I can hear them all outside the door. I open the door and there's like 20 of them there, all champing at the bits to come in and get me out of the wing, steal everything off me. And they see that I've got a visit in there. And I say, look, I've got my visitor here. And the visits there are sort of sacrosanct and really respected. And also because of who she was and highly respected within the prison, they sort of look and they say, look, we'll come back. And I thought, oh, God. So they go away and they come back after she's left. No, I think they came back as she was. She was still there and said, look, you know, because you're foreign, we'll accept that you're not really involved and we'll give you a pass, but you're going to have to pay a fine. And, you know, I knew what was coming. She leaves. I then get called to talk to the boss of the wing, the new boss of the wing. There were three of them they put in. All of them are just horrible towards me. Just a nightmare. And I end up paying somewhere around $1,000 to basically stay on the wing and smooth things over. But they made my life hell after that. Just every week coming to me and trying to extort me for anything, you know, some excuse that they come up with, you know, any, any reason that they could think of. Cutting off a long story short, basically, I moved to a different wing, a safer wing, which is mainly for foreigners. I spend a while on that, well, quite a while on that wing. My mum dies at the six-year point whilst I'm out there. She dies, she becomes ill and dies, which is just horrendous. My auntie dies, my cousin dies. I find my best friend, English guy out there called Steve, hung, killed in his cell by the gang. He was due to get released. I ended up doing some business with him, which I told him not to do got into debt, they end up coming in there, choking him and then tying him up, making it look like a suicide. So he ends up dead. Two years later, another Scottish guy, the same thing happens to him, another friend of mine. So at that point, the embassies, because obviously the first one got covered up as a suicide. The second time it happens, the guy had tried to fight back and we knew exactly, we knew it wasn't, and we were able to prove that it wasn't suicide. So the embassy then started paying attention and, uh, you know, and realised that we were being targeted as foreigners, as British. So it became priority to get us out of there really as quick as they could. So my stepmom and my dad very kindly paid the $8,000 fine to get me repatriated back to Britain. Prior to that, I also became really ill with tuberculosis after being injected with a supposed vaccine, which in fact were... The pharmaceutical companies testing the vaccines on us so they actually came around and infected me with a multi-drug resistant bovine strain of tb i hadn't been anywhere near a cow in six years at that point uh i suffered with tb for three years went from like 85 kilos down to 49 at the worst it was virtually suffocating every day uh there were multiple gunfights on the wing uh, loads of other people ended up dead. I ended up getting a piece of shrapnel in the bag, got stabbed once, but well, not badly, but slightly. 
got hit over the back in the middle of a fight. I was trying to break a fire, got hit over the back, got ended up paralysed for three months. Well, not paralysed, I didn't walk for three months, so pretty much the same. Uh, so, yeah, just uh, just a nightmare. In the last year that I was there, they built a whole new prison estate because uh, the prisons that we were in had just become so insecure that there were so many murders going on sometimes three a day within an hour people getting dismembered people get, I, thought, I, I swear every form of killing you could imagine people getting drowned beheaded macheted to death knifed electrocuted poisoned shot blown up crushed head with a rock with like half concrete block uh hand grenade a mate of mine got lost his foot in a hand grenade attack i mean just just litany of murder and death just horrendous lucky to survive so yeah we get transferred to these large to these to these new prisons that they built this whole new prison estate which is very much like a prison uh, an american prison with barred doors again sliding doors five people to a cell we weren't allowed to take any of our possessions with this into the last prison so we were literally stripped i, I lost all the letters from my dead mother all the photographs from her, I couldn't take anything with me, nothing, not one thing. We were given a pair of shorts, a t-shirt, flip-flops and thrown into this new prison, which was, they hadn't even finished building it. The water hadn't been connected properly, so we would get water uh, two hours a day. We, we didn't have anything in the cell. We weren't allowed paper or pens, no razors. There were no TVs, no radios. We weren't allowed, there was no post. There wasn't any post at any point at all in the whole nine years. There was no postal system. There were no pay phones in the prison. So we had no visits for the first six weeks. We had no contact with any family or embassy for the first six weeks. Yeah, there was literally nothing in the cell. There was one strip light at the back that came on at 7 p.m. and went off at 10.30 at night, and that was it. The food was terrible. For breakfast, we would get one bread roll and a, like maybe a hot drink. Lunch was a plate of rice and a bowl of water which was supposed to be soup and maybe one small piece of chicken like the size of the top of my thumb dinner would be a plate of rice with again one piece of chicken that size that was it we all lost loads of weight not that i could lose any more weight <laughs> thank thankfully the medication started getting a bit better in the new prison they, they actually got proper doctors in all our medical records disappeared because of what had been happening here with these pharmaceutical companies trialing drugs on us in the old prison and I, the reason I know they were tried in drugs on us is because having been in, injected with this supposed vaccine, I became chronically ill with TB. Uh, and so did loads of other people around the prison, whereas prior to that, there was hardly any, any TB in the prison whatsoever. See, and, well, see, I know there's just so much stuff I could talk about. I know. It's like it, 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 I'm sitting here with Alicia and there's like a... a catalogue of stuff i mean if if you if you want more i mean if the, the best thing is to read my book which i'll promote now to go on give, give me a shameless plug on your book yeah which is called el infierno which means hell in spanish or the inferno so it's el, Inf el infierno uh published by uh ebri penguin obviously my name peter tritton and when is it come is it out oh yeah 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 that, yeah I, I i wrote that after getting released uh in 2015 Okay, and so that that book is it audio book or just just paperback? Yeah, audio, but uh, it's Kindle. You can get it as Kindle. As Kindle. Well. Kindle. Okay, great. Uh, but not audio book, yeah. And it tells that whole story. Now let's just let, let's just talk about you getting out. So I want I want to just deal with that bit. Yeah. So, so I get repatriated back from this uh, this last the new prison that they built. I, I finally get repatriated back to Wandsworth. Some English prison guards get sent out to collect me. 
in around uh, 2014. So this so from 2005 to 2014, I'm in Ecuadorian prisons. Yeah. So get back to Wandsworth in London, where they have a dedicated unit uh, just just for bringing people back from all around the world. The <laughs> when I got when I got taken to the airport in in uh, Guayaquil was quite a carry on. They they had four armed Interpol officers in the car with me, and then a jeep front and back with military armed with their M16s. So this huge convoy just for me because I tried to escape. Got to the airport and there's a whole load more people from the embassy and human rights watching this and the other. And that was really intense for me because it was the first time I obviously had to come through an airport, uh, loads of security as you can imagine. And also just loads of people wandering around looking at their, their, their phones or their tablets. It was just massive culture shock. And getting back to Britain as well, I didn't think it would be a culture shock for me because it's my, my own culture because I'm British. But I get back to Britain into Wandsworth and it's just prior to Christmas in November. And it was just crazy culture shock of just Western consumerism, you know, being bombarded by all the adverts for Christmas on TV. Just the fact that I had a TV in the cell was just amazing. Wandsworth to me was like Butlins. <laughs> honestly i you know there were people wandering around the yard crying going oh my god this is so terrible and i was like are you joking this is like this is amazing this is fantastic for me from where i've just come from how long did you serve in in there uh so i did the final 10 months of my sentence in there final 10 months and then and then then that was it that was the end of you never been to prison since no no okay <laughs> no, right. no, so, no more prison since. okay right so you come out okay and and did, how hard was it to adjust to life outside it, yeah it was pretty difficult I, I get released in 2015 uh my stepmom thankfully said i could come back and stay in, in the house that i'm talking to you from so i come back here i had to do a little bit on parole like the final few months of the sentence but because i've done so long in prison i did 10 years and 10 days in total out of a 12 i only had like i think a couple of months on parole or something so something crazy like that so did that yeah and it was yeah get, adapting to british uh, life again has been intense you know just things like the seasons i still haven't got used to that even now five years after being out of prison that isn't it not getting used to seasons yeah i mean being british you think it was all you know you're so used to the rain and the seasons and all of that sort of stuff and the, yeah. the clock's going back and forward but in ecuador it's 12 12 hours of light and dark every day because you're on the equator yeah so absolutely. it's yeah still i'm still not used to it now so you've written a book you've got another book in the making yeah working on the prequel at the moment okay and what's the future for you peter yeah, I mean, I've got a whole series of other books planned based around my experiences and the experiences of others, semi-fictional, about the drug trafficking and uh, just the whole drugs trade in general. I've helped quite a few journalists do quite a few articles, done quite a few podcasts with people such as yourself. Ultimately, I would like to write a script for a Netflix series. That would be the ultimate, sort of vaguely similar to Breaking Bad, sort of with quite a lot of dark humour in it. And if, if I was able to put you in touch with some people that could help you with that, would that be valuable to you? It would definitely be valuable, yes. Yeah, 100%. I think I can help you with that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll just briefly go into, because I would imagine some people have probably just seen Ecuador in the news recently, as far as the prison riots that have just happened there in the prisons that I was in, or in some of the prisons that I was in. Basically, the guy that I was talking about earlier, uh, JL Hotelli, he was uh, he was released from prison towards the end of last year. And uh, on December the 28th, he was gunned down in front of his family in a cafeteria in the port city of Manta. He was killed by a Colombian assassin at the behest of some of the other gangs in Ecuador. So that has triggered a power struggle within the Ecuadorian prison system for, you know, for control of the gangs and control of the drugs trade, the extortion, the robbery and all the rest of it that went with it. I mean, you can imagine these gangs are huge. They've got 38,000 gang members in prison in Ecuador. And you can imagine the, the, the money that they're generating is millions and millions every month. So the power struggle also is involving the Sinaloa cartel from, uh, from Mexico, who do a lot of their drug trafficking out of Ecuador. So they have now declared civil war on the Ecuadorian police and military. They issued a dictamen, which I can send you with. I've got a copy of to the British government and military and people say that anyone that's out on the street after 9pm will be classed as a military and will be killed, basically. So, yeah, they, they had these riots the other day on the anniversary of my mum's, well, on my mum's birthday, my dead mother's birthday, so 23rd of March, uh, 23rd of February, sorry. And there was basically a, a wholesale bloodletting in which 80 people got killed, including two of the guys who I was on the same wing as, who were both beheaded. I was sent the footage of this, you know, with my friend's head being held in someone's hands. A guy called Marino, who was actually quite a nice guy, they dismembered people. I mean, basically, any scores that were to be settled were settled rapidly on February the 23rd. People were dismembered, disemboweled, burnt, just a wholesale bloodletting. It was like a butcher's shop. There was one film that I've been sent where they've chopped, they've killed a guy and they've cut his heart out of his, out of his chest. They show his chest cavity, the hole in his chest cavity. They hold his heart out for the camera and it's beating. They shake it like this and it carries on beating and they're laughing and then they pans back to the guy and they're cutting off his head, sawing off his head. I mean, it's just the most horrific videos you will ever see. And I warn you now, if you don't want to watch them, you're easily, your stomach's easily upset, don't watch them because they will scar you for life. Horrendous. You'll see people actually being killed live on camera. And it's just horrific. But I suppose that, you know, it's one of those environments where when you create that kind of tension anyway, you're, you're, yeah. something eventually explodes, doesn't it? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I lived through some, like I described earlier, some similar instances. And the thing is, when you're there and you've got the adrenaline running through you and it's happening and it could happen to you and you're having to deal with this 24 hours a day for nine years. I mean, to some extent, you become dehumanized or desensitized to it. But it's, yeah, I mean, it's just absolutely shocking. Peter, thank you so much for coming to share Thanks your story with us. I just, I'd, I'd, I would like just to go and have a pint with you one day and, uh, and catch up well, with I you. Well, I, I could probably travel to the UAE. That's one of the countries I can come to, I think. <laughs> so although we've edited some of this, we have filmed for over two hours this episode. And I hope 
I hope that it gives you an insight to the kind of world that some people live in and a kind of world that a lot of us don't even understand or imagine. Horrific as it may be, some of you will say, if you can't do the time, then don't do the crime. But it isn't as black and white as that always. This guy really, really got me thinking. And to spend that much time and for him to have told me such a tiny portion of his life really tells me that there's there's more that's gone on in his life than probably a hundred of us put together of stuff that you don't want to see or experience. I try and bring you good guests. I try and find people that have got a real story to tell. And I hope this story either frightens you into getting away from ever getting involved in that kind of stuff or allows you to feel some compassion for people that make bad decisions and could have made better ones. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. Thanks for listening to the show. If you're listening to it on iTunes, please leave me a five-star rating. If you're listening to it on any other podcast app, I'd appreciate your follows and your comments and your support so that more people can get to enjoy this content. Remember, I'm watching and I'm listening, all of you. See you soon.